Yeah, man, that was good. Praise the Lord. Um, I got I to tell you a story about Jonathan Revis. That's a good story, too. So I, I told you all before, he's on our board of directors, which is, uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, Snowbird's a nonprofit corporation, so you have to have a board of directors and there's two ways to go about that. You can get a board of directors that's just a bunch of yes men, you know what I mean? There's a lot of ministries that, that do that. Those ministries you later read about their fall. <laughs> um, so you need, you need uh, men and women on your board that, will, that understand the vision, are bought into what you're about, but that also will hold you accountable. They're not afraid to say no. Typically, ministries are, are ministries that are growing and booming are, are typically led by strong personalities, visionaries, you know, and so those guys and gals need somebody that'll 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 shoot them straight. And uh, so, so Jonathan, you know, uh, when what, what happened was when we went through COVID, we needed. Uh, I realized we need a pastor on our board because we have a bunch of businessmen and women, and they're all really elite in their field. But there were some decisions made where I felt like the board didn't have my perspective as a pastor. Well, I was like, we got to go, man. We got to roll. 92% of camps are closing. If there's ever a time kids need to be able to go be immersed in this kind of environment, it's this summer. And, and our board was stressing and struggling a little bit with that. Anyway, so I said, hey, I need to, we need to add another board member, and he needs to be a pastor. So anyway, 500 churches come snowboard this year. And we we picked Jonathan, so that's what I think of him. But anyway, we're uh, so we're um, there's this there's this lake where I live called Lake Nanahala, and uh, and you go out on a boat and go to these cliffs. There's a lot of places you can go cliff jumping where I live, and um, in the mountains, and that's like a favorite pastime for my kids. I mean, my kids, I've got a 17 year old daughter that when she was about four, she would jump off this one. I've got video of her going off. It's about 40 feet. And there'd be these, no offense, but there'd be these Florida people who come up there <laughs> vacationing and stuff, you know, and they rent pontoons and they go out. And I just love taking money from people you're not supposed to bet. But um, I love taking, because these guys, there'd be like high school and college boys that would get up on this cliff and be scared to jump off. And I'd say, Laylee, go up there and jump off. She'd go up there, and she would just run off that thing. I mean, she's, she'd run off of it. Just lo- Most of them are like, you know, right at the edge. When they finally would jump after everybody would count down, and then they would just kind of step off. And, and she would, she was like six, seven years old, like jump off, you know, arms and legs going, you know. Anyway, I took Jonathan and Joe up there one time, and that idiot was doing gainers off of that thing. You know what a gainer is? And that's that's part of why I wanted him on our board of directors. So, turn to turn to Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one. Um, so my granddaddy, my granddaddy, uh, he passed away. He died. I don't remember ten years ago. And he was uh, he wasn't a believer uh, when I was growing up. My mom would always pray for him. I got I got saved when I was twenty, and so when I was twenty, I started praying for my granddad. And uh, he was the most influential male role model, I think, in my life. And, um, and he always dipped. And uh, I mean, always dipped. You know what I mean? And um, 
and he actually got saved on my couch when he was about 80 years old. He moved in with us. He went into alcohol rehab for like the fifth time. He had severe PTSD. Um, in World War II, they called it shell shock, I think, you know. And he had been on Omaha Beach the day after D-Day. He landed on, on a day or two, June 8th, 9th, 10th, somewhere in there. A lot of bodies still in the surf. He was, not, he was 20 years old. Anyway, he had, he had a lot of issues and uh, but that generation, you know, I don't know if you ever read that Tom Brokaw book, The Greatest Generation. It's fantastic. But they came back, and they just went to work. They didn't come back and incapacitate themselves. They came back, and they rebuilt a country, you know. And so he was, he was one of those cool stories. But anyway, um, he, he, had, he, he came and lived with us. And my grandmother, was because she was going to put him in a, re, like a long-term care facility. He was like 80. She's like, I can't do this anymore. He had gotten down. He was real drunk one night and got down. My brother and a couple of my cousins had to go over there and get him up and get him an ambulance. And and so she was going to put him in this facility. I said, can he come live with, with us? And she's like, yeah, but we live in like a 650-square-foot house. And uh, and he came, moved in there with us, and that will that will perfect your marriage, if, if, <laughs> if that's the word, you know. But um, so, uh, so anyway... He got saved, man. It was crazy. We sat on the we sat on in my living room by the wood stove, fire going. It was, it was about this time of year. Have fire at night. We sit there, which you don't need a fire here at night right now. <laughs> I learned that when I got out of my truck today. But um, <laughs> but we would sit, and he was telling me he had never talked about. It. He's one of those guys he wouldn't talk about his war experience. So I just man, I documented his whole experience. I wrote it all out. It was pretty cool. But anyway, he he came to Christ. She's like 80 years old, he gets saved. And then it was like cool watching the simplest faith, you know, like super simple faith. But I remember he had, he was in the hospital. He's in ICU. He's 85. He's in ICU. And he'd been in there about three days, and I hadn't been able to go see him. And uh, it was in the middle of our summer camp. So I, I was headed to go see him, and I knew he wouldn't have had no dip, you know. So I was going to smuggle him some dip. I'm a good grandson. And I'm going to smuggle in some dip. And, and I'm a pastor and a preacher, and that's okay. So I'm going to smuggle in some skull in the, you know, the, uh, I see you. And so, and he didn't have no sons. It's all daughters. It's my mama and all her sisters. And so, and they are all, they are all wound tight as a hammer, man. Like they are, like none of them are loose. You know what I mean? Like they are wound up. And uh, like they're those overly dramatic people. That if you ask them, hey, what'd you do today? If they're explaining that they did something normal, like laundry or a Walmart trip, it's got a lot of breathing involved. Like, oh boy, I did laundry this morning, you know? Like, that's a Southern woman thing, okay? So, whoo, we went to Walmart. It was crazy. I was like, man, it sounds so crazy, you know? And uh, so I'm going to go to the ICU and I'm going to smuggle in some skull, you know? And and uh, they'd only let one person go back and... Uh, and go back, go back in there, and so my my aunt Bobby was back there. So she come, they she came out, and I went back, and so I walked in the ICU, and he's sitting there with that oxygen mask, and it's not a CPAP, it's like just oxygen, you know. And he's kind of his eyes are rolled back. He's 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 about to be able to come out of ICU, but he's out of it pretty good. And I walked in. He called me Bubba, and I walked in. And I pulled that skull out of my pocket. I felt like I was in middle school all over again. I held it up like this, you know. 
and he was laid back like this, and his eye kind of came into focus, and he went, oh, boy, and he about sucked that thing, like, you know, into his, and he put it on top of his head like a scuba mask and set up, and he's, you know, he's shaking, trying to get that skull in his mouth. He got it in there, and I got him a spitter. He didn't have his teeth in. This is going all over the place. I promptly got kicked out of ICU when they figured out what was going on. My, my, uh, my grandmother, his wife, we called her Dinky. Everybody called her Dinky. She was so mad at me. She was about four foot seven. She was mad. But I, um, but I, so when I, I remember went out to the, uh, went out to the lobby and then it was like, Hey, your papa wants you to come in there and read the Bible to him. And I went in there and I just, I read the Bible to him and he just liked for me to read the Bible to him. He wasn't a theologian. Like if you ask him, hey, what do you think about the doctrines of grace? He's like, uh, uh, I know the word grace. Grace is, and he would explain that to you. And that's all he knew, you know, like, and what do you think about pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism? He would go, huh, I got baptized. You know, like he didn't, like he didn't, he never had a chance. He started following Jesus in his 80s, which is an awesome testimony. Like that's when you don't stop praying for people. You know what I mean? Like you pray for people. You don't know when God's going to save somebody. But it was cool. He had the simplest faith. And I just watched him grow. As a, he's a, when he died, he's a 10-year-old Christian, and he was, had grown those whole 10 years. But it was a simple faith. And I want to I look at what Peter... So Second Peter is kind of like Second Timothy. In that Second Timothy is the last thing Paul wrote. And so you've got sort of like Paul's last words to the church, but they're to Timothy. Peter's letter is is what we would call like a universal letter. So it's the last words to the church. It, was, it wasn't just to Timothy or just to a, a church. It's to us, man. It's for us. And it's his last, it's his last thing because he says at the end of uh, the this, this section we're going to look at, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And this was a guy that I think, um, I think had... Most, most Christians will say they identify with Peter more than anybody else. Most of us will identify with Peter because of the highs and lows, you know. And so he, what he does is he breaks, I feel like this text is so powerful and so beautiful because it breaks the Christian life down into simplicity. And most of us need it to be simpler. We just complicate stuff, man. We, and then we make it too hard. Then you, then you fail, at this thing you've created that's not anything that God designed. We don't need to complicate a simple gospel. Now, the, the word of God and the doctrines of grace and scripture and salvation and, and the theological framework of the Christian experience, it's like the ocean in that the depths of the ocean, you could spend a lifetime exploring and never know it all. You go to the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Rim, it's the deepest point on earth. It's, it's 30 plus, it's 35,000 feet down there. And they're finding stuff that, that I was reading. What are, what are some things they found in the Mariana Trench? All these crazy animals and planktons and stuff like that. And a Skittles wrapper. I was like, that's crazy. Like, you know, it's some, like just crazy. But like to go to that depth, you could spend a lifetime, you know, exploring the ocean. But when you're five years old, and you make sandcastles and you play in six inches of ocean water right in the surf, you enjoy it for what it is. The, the, like the newest childlike faith of a believer who's only been walking with Jesus for moments can bask in and enjoy the simplicity of an experience with Christ and can interact with his word. Or the guy that has three doctorates 
and is a professor in the most prestigious seminary, he should still be experiencing the depths of the riches and goodness and knowledge of God. But it should all be done in the simplest, cleanest way, and we don't need to complicate things. I see this with my wife who has what I believe is such an encouraging faith to me because when I want, when, when every, every day she gets up, she gets kids off school, she comes back to the house, um, and she goes and she sits in her chair and she just reads the Bible. She just reads the Bible. It's like if, if you will commit every single day to get up, to open God's word, to interact with your creator, to submit to his word, to approach the word of God, to be mastered by it, not to master it, to surrender to the authority and the power of the theological truths that are there, not to wield them. If we will fear the Lord because that's the beginning of knowledge, and God will just grow us. Like, the, like your growth will be a reality. You'll grow in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and man. So I think Peter, Peter was a guy that probably had learned this the hard way because when you, when you look at Peter in, in the ministry of Jesus, you know, he's just doing knucklehead stuff. And you're like, what's it? What? But then that's also why you identify with him. You know? And so I want to just walk through this text. I want to, I want to keep it simple. But I think in the simplicity, there's a complexity where we realize, oh, but there's a lot of depth to this. But let's keep it simple. Let's don't compl- we don't need to complicate something that doesn't need to be complicated. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours. Okay, stop. So, so this, is, this is a man with apostolic authority. Apostolic authority means he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Apostolic authority means he was there with Jesus, saw Jesus crucified. He was there at the transfiguration, saw the glory of Jesus. He was an eyewitness that gave him authority. Jesus said that he was going to use Peter in a unique and special way in the founding and the growth of the early church. And he did that. He was there at Pentecost preaching a hot gospel with passion and fire just weeks after he wilted under the gaze of a 13 year old girl and used obscenities aimed at Jesus to disassociate with him like vulgar terminology vulgar language to disassociate with Jesus and then six weeks later he would preach a hot fire breathing gospel calling people to repent and would see thousands come to salvation and then would be thrown into prison this is that that Peter that touched people and they were healed of their sickness, that gave sight to the blind, that gave life to dead people. That Peter, who Jesus said, I'm going to do wonderful things to you, he writes in the opening words of this letter to you and me, the faith that you have obtained is the exact same quality of faith that I have. We've got this, I think we've got this thing in our in our minds where there's like this unspoken hierarchy let's leave that with the catholics i ain't being ugly but let's leave that like we we don't have no like we don't have no no trinitarian like we don't have a we don't have a human version of the trinity with like a person here and then some people here and some people like 
We are, we are referred to as the family of faith, members of the household of God, co-heirs with Christ. Yes, God calls pastors and leaders to unique responsibilities, but he also then will write that we all have unique responsibilities within the body of Christ. And they're complementary. And Peter says, listen, the faith that you have obtained is obtained the same way that my faith is obtained. That should empower us, man. That should invigorate you. When you've got, when, 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 when you've got like one of the founders of the church that Jesus established saying, your faith is just like my faith. And then he gives us, he gives us some, some understanding of that faith. And he says, by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's like, your faith is your faith because of and through and by the righteousness of Jesus. This is, this is in reference to what we would call the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Which means, Jesus gives me his righteousness, he takes my sin, transaction over. Like, done deal. There's nothing beyond that. It's not like... It's not like, you know, like if you ever, if you ever built a house and it was going to be a custom home and, and, and you're taking bids and the contractor specking it out and he's like, here's what we're going to do. We do, we build on cost plus. That means we're going to give you a, a, the cost of materials that's going to be passed to you plus then a percentage above that. What that does is that protects the builder where if, if inflation drives the cost of lumber up or down then he's not locked into so cost plus people treat their faith like that it's like faith plus faith plus if i do the right things like because we tend to wallow and struggle and and wrestle with self-guilt self-loathing self-doubt self-condemnation we doubt we doubt the faith that christ has given us which means we don't understand really the author of our faith because he's not to be doubted and so, so the, the, the righteousness that we receive, we receive by declaration. Jesus declares it. And what Jesus says when he declares something, he declares it with authority. You don't, listen, conquering kings do not negotiate the terms of agreements. They, do, they make declarations and it is so. Like it's so. And so, he, so Peter's like, the faith that you have is the same as the faith that I have. It, it is a gift of God, and it comes about by way of declaration and application and imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and you didn't ever earn that. So let's start this letter off before I die and leave you. Let's start this off with making sure you understand the reality and the power of the gospel in your life. Here's what if we... So, so let's, let's simplify this. You and I, those of us who are in Christ, are in Christ because of the work that he has done. Not because of the work that we have done. And, there's ne- and, and we will remain in Christ because of his ability and authority to keep us. It's not salvation plus. It's not faith plus. It's not righteousness plus. Now, where, this, where, where we get in trouble with this is we, we say, okay, I believe that. I, like, I do believe that. But then we all wrestle with, well, where does my responsibility come into this? How do I then, what is my reaction to the work that Jesus has done? Because we also know, true or false, true, I'll go ahead and answer it for you. It's true. The, the question is true. The answer is true. In the Bible Belt, people love them some doctrine of eternal security. Because they will tell you 
They will live like hell for five decades and then expect a preacher to preach them into heaven based on the fact that, well, but he made a profession of faith and once saved, always saved. Listen, y'all, there is a tension in the life of the believer where we recognize salvation is given to me. It's a work of God. My righteousness is imputed to me. It's not based on my works, but there is a tension where there's responsibility. I have responsibility when I like, like, and my responsibility is in reaction to who God is, to what God's done, to the way God has moved and how God has worked. And that like understanding my responsibility is very important because understanding my responsibility is what's going to drive my action. So he says that I have obtained a faith of equal standing with that of Peter by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, I want to talk about, let's go to verse 3. Let me read verse 3. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, let's, let's go to verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want to talk about the word godliness because he's saying that God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, what, what we're going to find in the Christian life is there's a healthy degree of tension. There's tension. Tension is a good thing. You ever try to cut plastic or, or cloth and you, it helps if somebody's pulling either side of that, right? Pull that, it creates tension, and then it cuts better. If it's bunched up and wadded up, it's more difficult. So sometimes I think we get afraid of tension in the Christian life. Well, I believe in eternal security, but there are commands in Scripture, and I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know where, like, and we, and we can kind of freak out. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the doctrine of election, but I know that I'm called to a certain responsibility. And we sort of, we tend to freak out over tension. We say, let me tell you something. Tension in the, in, the, in the word of God, tension in the life of the believer is a good thing. It holds us, it holds us in the place that we need to be when we wrestle with those things so that we don't run into either ditch or off either cliff, whatever it is that we're dealing with. And where for the believer, the tension that we need to live with is the call to godliness. Okay, now, when I was, when I was a young Christian, I remember somebody telling me one time, I'm not into, uh, let's see, how do they say? I'm not into religion. I mean, it's a relationship. It's not religion, it's a relationship. And I appreciate what they're trying to say. They were trying to say, it's, we don't just live like religious piety or religious practice. We live in a real relationship with Jesus. But if you're not careful, you can just focus on the relationship with Jesus. And that's when you get worship songs that sound like old REO Speedwagon love songs to Jesus, which I don't, I'm not comfortable with. Like, you know what I mean? Like, men, any of y'all feel like, I don't really feel like I want to sing to Jesus a love song like I'm his prom date. You know what I mean? Like, like there's sometimes there's this over-sensationalizing, emotionalizing approach to what it is to be the bride of Christ or to be loved by Jesus. And if we're not careful, we, 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 t- we, we take the relational component we can take it too far where we forget that Jesus is holy and unapproachable, which is why he approached us. Like, like he dwells in unapproachable light, Paul would write to Timothy. And if he's in unapproachable light, I cannot come near him. He comes to me. Then he says, this is what the, a lot of the book of Hebrews is about. He's like, so draw near to the throne of God. Draw, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And so he draws us in. The picture of Jesus going into the Holy of Holies 
if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, and in the Holy of Holies, what would happen is, the, you guys know this, the high priest would go in there and they'd put a chain on the high priest so that if he died, y'all know this, right? He could be pulled out. Because if he died, it's like, uh, who's going who's to go get that cat? You know, like, not, not it, not it. You know, who's the, who's the associate pastor? Send that guy. Youth pastor, where's Zortman? Send that guy. You know, like, like. So, so in Hebrews, the picture is painted that Jesus goes into the most holy place and rather than needing to be dragged out, the chain is now tethered to us and he drags us in. So now we're in this holy place and the veil of the temple is ripped and that old system is, that old covenant is fulfilled and there's a new covenant. It's a covenant of grace and it's ratified in the blood of Jesus. So we're brought into relationship. So where's, so, so it is a relationship, but it's a relationship built on the reality of the greatest doctrines that we could ever imagine, which is the righteousness of Jesus has been given to me because of the work of Jesus. So where do I, where, so, so what godliness does is it creates the right tension between recognizing I do love Jesus. I do want to sing songs of love and worship and praise to him. But with that, there is a fear and a reverence and an understanding of his holiness and a recognition that I could never approach him, but he could drag me into that place that I could never get by, my, by myself. That's when we talk about godliness. Godliness is the place where we live in that tension. Godliness is a striving after an, an, an imitation of Jesus to live my life. Like, like godliness applies to every aspect of my life. I want a godly marriage, then I want my marriage to look like the relationship that Jesus has with the church. I want to pursue godly masculinity, godly manhood. I want to, I want to pursue life like Jesus. I want to be a better daddy or, or, or employer or employee. Christ is my example. So godliness is the imitation of Christ in every aspect of my life. And Peter, over the course of his writings, in his, in his two letters, he really breaks godliness down into three things, and I want to give you those. The first one is submission. If I'm imitating Christ, and that's godliness, the first one is submission. Jesus, who Paul would write to the Philippians, equality with God was not something that he grasped, but he let go of that, and he entered into the human condition and submitted to the will of the Father. So submission, you like, am I, am I living a godly life? Here's a, good, here's a good check. Am I living in submission and surrender to the word of God, the authority of God, and to the will of Christ for my life? Second thing that Peter breaks godliness down into is a willingness to embrace suffering. For the believer, we're going to embrace suffering. We're not, in other words, we're not afraid of suffering. Whether that's suffering in the persecuted church, our brothers and sisters that are in other places in the world being persecuted for their faith, or if it's ridicule, marginalization for us in the West. And a, and a willingness to embrace suffering. Paul writes to the Romans, Romans eight eighteen. I consider the suffering of this present life not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in Christ Jesus because our suffering has context. It's being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And the third aspect of our godliness, of, of what godliness looks like, is service. So the service of, 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 of my life to the church and the world. So I serve within the body of Christ. We serve one another. We encourage one another. We live out Christian community. And then we serve the world with the gospel. 
We're on mission. We're taking the gospel to the people around us. We're sharing the gospel with those people that need Jesus. So, so he, he says then in verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire i'm not going to drill into this a lot right now he's making an assertion it's like the reality of our faith and it's based on the knowledge of god which we could break the knowledge of god down depending on how how the the um the sentence structure works sometimes the knowledge of god is referring to god's knowledge other times it's referring to our knowledge of god what we know to be true of god um and so so two truths that peter would assert that need to be a reality for the believer that we need to recognize one is the knowledge of god j.i packer and knowing god if you haven't read that that's a must read for the christian um who's who's i, I believe i believe Packers Knowing God as You Walk with Jesus is such an important book. He says this, what, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And then the second thing Peter speaks to is the promises of God. It says he has given, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. I jotted down a few promises here in Christ. In Christ, I realize that God really does love me. In Christ, I have the promise that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. In Christ, I know that Jesus died to set me free from sin. Jesus died to give me his righteousness. I'm a member of the household of God. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. Jesus began a good work in me. Jesus will be faithful to complete it. Jesus can heal in me what is broken. I have been saved by grace. I have been given purpose. Jesus has given me value. Jesus gives me my identity. No one will pluck me from the hand of God. I am a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus. I am adopted as a son. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. Jesus will never leave me. Jesus will never forsake me. Jesus has justified me. Jesus is sanctifying me. Jesus will glorify me. And Jesus loves me. That's just a few of the promises. That's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big. And it's so simple. It's so simple. So the promises of God. And here's where the tension of godliness and godly living comes in. He says, for this reason, based on these promises and these realities based on the faith that you've obtained, based on the righteousness of Jesus. So based on your identity, my identity as a child of God, a believer who's in Christ, rooted, grounded, being built up because of who I am in Christ, based on that, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay, it's not faith plus. It's, it's the Christian grinding it out, man. Grinding it out. You'll see in the in the... The descriptions of the Christian life in Scripture will be like running a marathon, which nobody in their right mind would ever want to do that. <laughs> oh, these guys, no, these dudes at work at Snowbird, and they like run on purpose. Like they they go running. Y'all seen? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of you probably do this. What are you doing? I'm going running. All right, man. I'm going to go eat some biscuits and gravy. I, I'll meet you up at the chow hall. So, 
So, but it's like the picture is it's it's I'm, I'm in a race. It's a distance distance race. There's a picture of a boxing match. There's a picture of a wrestling match. There's a picture of a fight to the death in the arena where Paul uses the word agonizomai, which is the the word agonizing to and fighting to the point of death in the arena to describe the Christian life. So it's not faith plus in that I don't receive faith and then I go about earning the right to keep that faith. It's I receive faith and in response to what Jesus has done, I act. I'm reactionary as a Christian. I react based on what he's doing in me. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it's his workmanship. So what I like to think of in, this, in these few verses is imagine a ladder. We're on a ladder, the Christian life. I'm on this ladder, on this staircase, and he talks about supplementing my faith. So make, make in verse 5, every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, which is moral excellence. Like, like live morally excellent. Not, not pious, not legalistic. It's not legalistic. I, let me tell you where legalism ends, if you're a parent. My, my, I grew up in an, I don't know if y'all know what this, I don't know if you know what these words mean. Indie fundy, independent, fundamental. That's the world I grew up in. We put the fun in fundamentalism. Okay. What? What? what I, I, might, I might be getting a little bit. I might be stepping into some sacred territory here. Okay, so let me rein it back. You cannot create a bunch of rules, follow them, and then it spits out like the perfect Christian. Doesn't work that way, right? So I'm not just trying to come up with a set of rules to live by. So virtue or moral excellence, like I'm adding that to my faith. It's just simply, it's tied back into that idea of godly living. It's a person that lives by conviction. It's a person that lives by conviction and with integrity and moral excellence. And I add to that knowledge. My knowledge of the word of God is growing. Self-control, that's an important one. That's a fruit of the spirit. Fruits of spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against such there is no law. So that's self-control with steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Well, it's perseverance. We've got to be steadfast because we're in a fight. Be steadfast in the task for the job at hand. Jesus said that no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. So we're in a fight. We're in a fight for the pursuit of holiness. We're in a fight to continue even when we've fallen. You fight the darkness with the light of the gospel. You fight the lies with truth. You fight drama and gossip with love for others. You fight temptation with the sword of the spirit. You fight bitterness with the heart of forgiveness. You fight envy and greed and jealousy with contentment and a satisfaction that comes from knowing and surrendering to Jesus. We fight for those who can't fight for themselves, the marginalized, the destitute. We fight with the courage and determination that the Lord supplies. We fight smart. We fight our fight. We don't fight a fair fight. We fight with the word of God as the sword of the spirit, and that is overwhelming. We're called to perseverance and steadfastness. Then from there, he goes into godliness. It's cyclical. He comes back to this idea of godliness, which is another indication of the Christian life is not about attaining it's about a constant journey, a constant process. That's why Paul will say, not that I've already attained. Like, why is godliness halfway up the ladder when he started with godliness? Because this is a constant journeying process. It's, like my, like, it's not like I climbed this rung of the ladder. Okay, I got faith. Now I got virtue. And then I move on from those things and 
and have perfected those things. I'm constantly perfecting these things. Christ is constantly perfecting these things in me. Too many, here's what too many Christians do. They put on the helmet of salvation and go to war. You watch, you watch combat fighters. Imagine, imagine some dude going out there in his, in his boxer shorts and some Chuck Taylors and a helmet. That's it. He's like, I'm here to go to war. I mean, it's like doesn't even make sense, right? There's armor, there's kit, there's weaponry, there's there's shoes, your feet shod, the gospel of peace. I wear boots. That's the end of that sentence. I run in my I trail run in my mountain boots. Like I I like like but but a lot of people like to wear, you know, like slides or flip flops or like I got me some crocs. I rock them. My kids laugh at me, they're like I can't figure if Crocs are in or out. It's been this cycle. Have you noticed that? They were in, they were out. They're, you get your, Dad jokes if you're wearing them, then they're cool. And then NBA players are wearing them. And I'm like, well, I got some Crocs, NBA player. They're like, yours are real tree camouflage. Right? Oh, so the color matters. I don't know. But I can tell you this. If I knew I was going to war tomorrow, I would not have my Crocs on. I'd have these boots on. I would not go into a gunfight with my fists, Right? Like there's this picture of the Christian life that we're armoring up for the battle. So the fight that we're in, is a, there's a constant need for each of the things in this ladder so that, the, so that the man of God, the woman of God is built up. And godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Jesus said, people will know that I'm real by the way you love each other. When people come into this church, they'll feel the bond of love that we have for each other. And he says in verse 8, If these qualities are yours and are, un- are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. If you said to me, what's your two biggest fears in life? Those two things right there. That I would be ineffective and unfruitful. Jesus said, oh, there's a fruit tree? It ain't producing fruit? Pluck it up, burn it. Pluck it up and burn it. Self-examination. Are you bearing fruit? This ain't even a hard one to figure out. It's self. It's that self-evaluation. You might ask your spouse. You might not. You need to self-evaluate first. Ineffective or unfruitful. I can think of. Here lies Brody. On the day of the memorial, you know, celebration of life. Today we celebrate his ineffective and unfruitful life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being brought from death to life? Being given the power that raised Jesus from the dead and living an ineffective and unfruitful life. I go to Walmart this morning. That's the big adventure of the day. Really? That sounds horrible. That sounds crazy. Man, ineffective and unfruitful. But... Here's the promise. Here's the hope. If these qualities are yours, the very point he's making is you won't be ineffective and unfruitful. Pursue faith and godliness and moral excellence. And, st- and what you find in this list is this really clear, now, now this idea of tension comes into view. Because what this list of things does in a Christian's life is it keeps me from becoming a theological hoity-toity snob who's holier than thou and looks down on everybody and condescends and judges people but it also keeps me from 
giving a license to myself and others to live however I want to live because I've abused the doctrine of eternal security. I can do whatever I want to do. It's tension. This says it's, salvation is not by works, but I'm called to toil and fight and labor and grind it out every single day. And the tension's there so that I love God and his word and theology and I love people and I love them with the love of Jesus. I don't love them for what they offer me. I love them for what I offer them, namely Jesus and his gospel. And the last thing that, uh, that, that he says that I think is so important. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. That's like a promise of God, man. Came here last year, preached, I think it was on Sunday morning, the message, don't drift. No one ever drifts towards holiness. How do you not fall? Get on this ladder and don't get off of it. Don't be lazy. Don't be whiny. Don't be a baby. Don't be a sissy. Don't act like you have a, some sense of entitlement as a Christian. Don't act like somebody owes you something because you're special. You are a grimy, slimy, dirty sinner saved by grace who's been imparted and imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. And the rest of your life, you could never earn that back. So live as one who is a conqueror, who is victorious. And get on the ladder and keep climbing. And do the things that matter. Pursue holiness, love others, love God's word, submit to his authority, and you'll not fall. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, read it again. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And then if you finish down to verse 15, he says, I'm getting ready to die, and I'm going to, in the last three minutes here, I'm going to give you the condensed version of what he says, the paraphrased verse. He says, I'm going to die, so after I'm gone, what I just told you, just keep coming back to this. Simple. It's simple. Take First Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter 1, first 12, 11 verses, 12 verses, say, take 15. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. If that's the only piece of scripture you ever had, what Peter's saying is just keep stirring that up, you'll be just fine. What about Daniel on the lion's den? Just keep stirring that up, you'll be just fine. What about eschatology? Just keep stirring that up. You'll be fine. Am I all male, pre-male, post-male? Am I, what, what, who's the pale horse? What, what represents, who's Putin? Just keep stirring that up. You'll be fine. <laughs> what about COVID? Should I wear a mask? What about, just keep stirring that up. You'll be fine. You, God will apply wisdom and discretion and he'll give you what you need to make the decisions you need to make to love people well, to love Jesus well, to serve others, to be true to the gospel, to be, to, to have pure biblical fidelity to your savior and to love other people really well and to be victorious in the christian life and to suffer well and to submit wholeheartedly to jesus he said keep stirring it up it it reminds me of when i was a kid i loved chocolate milk but we only we didn't have chocolate milk we had this thing called government milk i don't know if y'all know what that is and and i go over to my i go over to my nanny's house and she had hershey syrup and you can make chocolate milk. But I'm going to tell you something. The first time I tasted real chocolate milk, the chocolate had been properly stirred up. Because I know it didn't come out of the cow like that. I remember asking my, I remember asking my, my daddy, now, the Black Angus make the chocolate milk and the Charlay make white milk? And I was like so confused. And he's like, no, son, they mix chocolate into that. I was like, 
well, how come when I mix it, it don't work like that? Because if you, y'all remember this, you mix the chocolate in, you get to the bottom of the glass and there's a big hunk of chocolate laying down there. It didn't get stirred up properly. I feel like so many Christians have all this stuff. It just goes, and it's just at the bottom. And he uses the words literally, stir these things up, stir them up. Stir them up. Don't be stagnant. Don't be lazy. Don't be passive. Don't be passive aggressive. Don't be complacent. Don't be entitled. You are not a victim. You're a conqueror. Stir it up. Get on the ladder and walk it out. Let's pray.